want to introduce our, our guest speaker for this morning, and many of you will know Ed Underwood. Ed's a friend of ours from Church of the Open Door down in California. Well, this is one of Ed's best friends, and so uh, I've been able to make um, a new friend with Kevin Butcher through Ed, and Kevin's story goes a little bit like this. He's a, a, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and then has been pastoring in Detroit for several decades, uh, I think coming up on three decades, uh, at, a, at a rather large church, a rather typical ministry. And then in the last chapter of his life, he transitioned from there to a, a different church that's more uh, in the center of Detroit, uh, that is very multiracial and just has a huge heart for hurting people in Detroit. And so it's a really uh, cool thing just to hear Kevin tell his story and just the passion that God has given him for people and the hurting people, the people that really need the love of God. And then he literally walks the streets of Detroit, the mean streets of Detroit, just looking for people to love on. Uh, now, Ed has warned me that when Kevin um, teaches, it's kind of a full contact sport. So be warned. Um, but what we want to do is just invite Kevin Butcher up this morning, if you guys would give him a warm welcome. You know what? I could use something to put this uh, water on, if you got anything like that. <clears throat> My voice, um, as God's sovereignty or fate would have it, depending on what your theology is, um, my voice started to go. I was at Moody Bible Institute the other day, and I got through those two two-hour classes, but um, then my voice started to, to sag, and last night in the middle of the night, I almost didn't get here. They, they canceled, apparently, hundreds of flights in Chicago. My flight made it out, had a slight delay. And, uh, and then in the middle of the night last night, I thought, God, you, you worked it out so I could get here. Now I can't talk, so what am I going to do? But here, so far, so good. i got water, and we'll just see what we can do. Um, I, I want to say thanks to, to, to Don and Brenda for hosting me. It's been a delight to get to know that brother and sister. And uh, I want to say thanks to Ken for turning over his pulpit to me. Um, one thing, just one caveat before I kind of get into what I, I think I'd like to share this morning. I really don't like the concept of being a talking head. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is I don't know you, and you don't know me. And so in some ways, I would say, why should you listen to me? You know, why? why? And, and I don't really know all of your journey. I don't really know any specifics about what's going on with you. If I could, if I could... It doesn't ever work out this way because we don't have enough time and, and not even enough energy, maybe not even enough skill. I would like to go around to each of you, and I mean this with all of my heart. I'd like to go around to each of you and sit there and hear your story and hear the wounds and the victories and um, just who you are. And then I'd like to look you in the eye and tell you everything that I'm going to try to share this morning about us collectively. I'd like to look you in the eye and tell it to you personally. And pray that somehow the Holy Spirit would allow that truth to go deep into your spirit. But I can't do that. I've got to do this. And so would you just know that, that when I'm talking this morning, I wish I was sitting with you. I don't know how many of you have anyone to sit with you. Or I don't know how many of you think you have somebody who sits with you who really cares that they're sitting with you. But I have very few gifts. But I will tell you this morning, I care to be sitting with you. And I love you even though I don't know you. That's just the way God 
has wired me, what he's put in my spirit. So please try to take it like that if you can. And so I want to start by just reading a, a piece of prose to you to kind of launch us into what I want to talk about this morning. Just see if you can track with this and see if it makes any sense to you. It's called, Please Hear What I'm Not Saying. This brother says, Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear. For I wear a mask. I wear a thousand masks, masks that I'm afraid to take off. And none of them is me. Pretending is an art that's second nature with me, but don't be fooled. I give you the impression that I'm secure, that all is sunny and unruffled with me, within as well as without. That confidence is my name and coolness my game, that the water's calm and I'm in command, and that I need no one. But don't believe me. Please. My surface may seem smooth, but my surface is my mask, my ever-varying and ever-concealing mask. Beneath lies no smugness, no complacence. Beneath dwells the real me in confusion, in fear, in aloneness. But I hide this. I don't want anybody to know it. I panic at the thought of my weakness and fear being exposed. That's why I frantically create a mask to hide behind, a nonchalant, sophisticated facade to help me pretend and to shield me from the glance that knows. But such a glance is precisely my salvation, my only salvation, and I know it. That is, if it's followed by acceptance, it's the only thing I believe that can liberate me from myself, from my own self-built prison walls, from the barriers that I so painstakingly erect. It's the only thing that will assure me of what I cannot seem to assure myself, and that is that I'm really worth something. But I don't tell you this. I'm afraid your glance will not be followed by acceptance and love. I'm afraid you'll think less of me and that you'll laugh, and your laugh would wound me. I'm afraid that deep down I'm not much and that you will see me and see this and reject me. So, I play my game, my pretending game, with a facade of assurance without. So, finally, when I'm going through my routine, don't be fooled by what I'm saying. Please listen carefully and try to hear what I'm not saying, what I'd like to be able to say, but can't. Who am I, you may wonder? Well, I'm someone you know very well, for I'm every man and every woman that you meet. What I'd like to talk about this morning <clears throat> is a topic that when you first mention it, you go, okay, here we go again, but please, please, don't go there. I want to talk about relationship. Because Jesus of Nazareth said in Matthew chapter 22, and I think you'll see the words on the screen, he said the relationship is it. Relationship is what we get up in the morning for. You may think that you're looking for that gold watch that comes at the end of whatever endeavor that you're, you know, on right now. But I've got to tell you, you know where every gold watch ends up? In a gold watch junkyard. The only thing that endures is relationship. And so one day, this young lawyer, not like our lawyers today, I'm talking about a guy who was an expert in Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you, you know, as well as I do, that Torah, the Old Testament law, captured the heart of God. And so this young lawyer went up to Jesus, the new rabbi in, in, in the block, and said, 
what is the first and the greatest commandment in the Torah? And because the Torah was about the heart of God, this lawyer might as well have been saying, what is at the core of the heart of God? And of course, Jesus could have said anything, but this is what he said. He said, this is the heart of our Father, to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and then to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so here are these three vital relationships, love of God, love of neighbor, love of self, that Jesus said is the core of what it means to be alive on the planet. It's where we get our joy. It's where our deepest wounds lie in relationship. It's the heart of our Father. It's meant to be our heart. And so Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this is what I think. And I have taught this particular passage all over the world on hillside with a bunch of Catholic schoolgirls in Uganda. I've taught it in South America. I've taught it in Germany. I've taught it with all age groups, all ethnicities, all backgrounds. And what I find to be true, every time I go to an audience and teach this, this stuff, we go, yeah, you're, no, you're right. Relationship is what it's about. And I got to tell you, I'm trying to love God. If I could get personal with you this morning and say, are you trying to love God? I mean, why did you get up on a snowy morning and bend Oregon and come here into this auditorium if you're not trying to love God? Of course you're trying to love God. And most of us would say, you know, I'm trying to love my neighbor. Got some funky neighbors, but I'm trying to love those neighbors. But I'm struggling. Sometimes I don't hear God's voice. Sometimes I don't know if he's even there. I don't know how to love him. And sometimes I don't really know how to love my neighbor. And this is what I think. And this is what I don't think the Church of Jesus has ever really talked much about because for some reason it's almost like a taboo topic. We've really not talked about the last relationship. That Jesus kind of assumes if you grew up in Israel, you're going to have a healthy relationship with this thing called self. And in my opinion, this third relationship is the linchpin that unleashes or hinders the other two relationships. And what I believe is true this morning, that for most of us, we have a separated relationship with ourselves. We've got a relationship that's disconnected with ourselves, and I think that could manifest in one of two ways. Either this alienation of self is manifested for those of us who don't really have a self. There you go. So if I said to you today, if I went down into the audience, and I just might, but if I did go down into the audience, and I said, so who are you? Most of the time, what we, we begin to talk about is who my mother thinks I'm supposed to be, who my father always dreamed I would be, who the teachers say I'm supposed to be, what the church says I'm supposed to be, what, what the college I went to, what the coach said, what society says, what the magazine covers reflect back to me, what my homeboys say, you know, what they imply that I'm supposed to be by what they affirm and what they don't affirm. But here's the question this morning. Who are you? What is yourself? Because, you know, there's only one of you. There's only one of you on the planet with your unique blend of talents and gifts and desires and passions and family background and DNA and wounds. There is only one you. How many of you saw The Matrix? How many of you saw The Matrix? Don't be afraid to write. There you go. Be, you know, express, express. You can get involved. Express. 
Remember when, when Keanu Reeves gets out of the pod, and you know, it's, it's shocking to see all those pods, but how many people were in each pod? One. One pod, one person. There's only one you. And so who yourself is, and I, again, I'm not trying to be crude, but let me just kind of put it down into, in, into where we can kind of feel this. If you're on a desert island and there's no media to reflect back to you who you ought to be, there's nobody whispering in your ear, no relationships that are kind of shouting you who you should be, there's no magazine covers, there's no TV, there's just you, buck naked, standing on a deserted island with your hopes, your fears, your dreams, what color you like, what you've always wanted to be when you grow up, that's the real you. And I'm going to tell you, most of us don't know that person because we're so busy trying to be what everyone else is trying to make us to be. I remember teaching this years and years ago when my sister-in-law, married to my brother, a sweet, strong, passionate woman of God, came up to me afterward with the tears running down her face. She says, I've got this husband, your brother, I've got these two little kids. She said, I have no idea who I am. And then the second way we're alienated from ourselves or disconnected from ourselves is I think some of us think we know who we are and we can't stand who we are. Now, I know that's not a really popular thing to admit in church, you know. You come into church this morning and somebody says, how you doing? Well, I hate myself, otherwise I'm fine, really. <laughs> Pretty good, but I just hate me. It's not really something you like to admit, is it? But deep down inside, I, I know there's a lot of self-loathing in the room, even though we're singing praise to Jesus and whatever. You know why? Because I grew up in the church, and yet I was a self-loather. Many of us can talk about the love of God, but to quote Brennan Manning, we, many of us are like travel agents handing out brochures to places we've never been. Telling folks, you know, God loves you. Well, do you know he loves you? Well, no, but I heard about it. I know the Bible verses, but I'm not really sure he loves me. And you see, this is a real problem. This is not just some, some you know, new agey, postmodern, existential, bad feeling moment where all poor us, we don't love ourselves. If Jesus said in John 13, in some of the last words he spoke on the planet, that our mission is to go out and love one another, you remember this passage, don't you? After he washed feet in John 13, if we're supposed to go out and love one another, what does he say? As I have loved you. You know what the implication is? If we don't receive it first, we've got nothing to give. Yeah, you might have something for about five seconds for somebody who is affirming you or reflecting back to you that you're cool. But if you're like me, can I tell you? You get, in my, you get in my grill, and I'm not, I'm not knowing the love of the Father that day. You and I are going to take a step outside. And you may whoop me because I'm 56, and I ain't what I used to be. But I got to tell you, I still got some fire left in the tank. So you, we may, we're going to go outside, and we'll see what happens. If I'm not receiving the love of the Father, if I'm receiving the love of the Father, if I know that he loves me so I can love me, you can spit in my face. I won't like it. But after I wipe it off and forgive you, I'll get down and try to wash your feet. Love one another as I have loved you. So this is not just, hey, I hope we can feel better about loving ourselves. This is endemic to our call at Antioch to be involved with the gospel. Because out there, the folks that we're really trying to love are not the ones that are already knowing that they're kind of loved and they kind of love us and so they'll come to church. We're talking about the folks that want to go like this. And so we say, well, then fine. You don't want my Jesus? No. Really, at that point, what we're really feeling is that emptiness of spirit that comes from either not knowing who we are or not loving who we are. And what it does, my brothers and sisters, is it creates a vacuum inside, 
a vacuum that longs to be filled with love. And so in that moment, even frankly with someone who is loving me, but especially with someone who's not loving me in return, that vacuum is longing to be filled. And so even in the best of my relationships, what I'm always looking for is not to give to you, but I'm looking for what you can give to me. We could be having a really cool conversation. You might think I'm really affirming you and I'm really one of your best friends, but deep down inside, if I'm living with this lack of self or hatred of self, I am scheming, even subconsciously in my mind, for how I'm going to get you to do something that will at least for a hot second fill me up inside. I was 35 years old, teaching at this growing church that Ken just talked about. And after service, I might as well have been a heroin addict going down into the audience just saying, tell me what a good job I did. Really, just look, give me the fix, give me the hit. Because I was so empty inside. Again, a travel agent handing out brochures to places I'd never been. Some of you might say, I don't know, dude. I don't, I don't know if that's me or not. All right, try some of these signs, if you will, on for size. How about this? this emptiness in our souls. How about this one? Do you ever find yourself looking pretty constantly for approval? In other words, how many of us are people pleasers? I'm not saying we don't like to make people happy. I'm not saying it doesn't feel good when somebody affirms us. I'm talking about those of us who basically transform our personality in a relationship to get somebody to affirm us because we feel so empty inside of our spirit. How about this one? Do you find yourself being critical of others? I'm not talking about being constructively critical. You know, there's a proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of, an en- of a friend more than the kisses of an enemy. Certainly, if you have a true friend, they're going to occasionally speak some hard truth to you. I'm talking about that critical spirit that comes up inside of us when we're like, you know, a sister walks in and we're like, huh, she thinks she's all that. She ain't nothing, man. I know who that girl really is. I mean, where is that coming from? Or you know how we are, guys. You know, we get in a room with other guys, you know, instead of just going up and saying, hey, we're just here, man. We're loved by God. We're full. We just have something to give. We go in and kind of scope out the room like a pack of dogs, you know, just trying to figure out who's the big dog and where we fit in the pack and in the pecking order. We're so critical. Could it be that it's really not about the other person? Could it be that when we're criticizing someone else, it's just a moment where for a minute... We put a little salve on our emptiness. It makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. And how about this one? Whoa, whoa. If you, if you didn't know if God existed, I'm telling you, that was a sign right there because usually I will knock something over while I'm up here doing this thing. All right, the third one, difficulty in relationships. difficulty in relationships, and yet here's what we constantly do. Well, he's not my friend anymore because he, or do you find yourself in relationships getting kind of clingy? Because maybe you're, you're not sure that if they, just, if they just had to love you without you holding on, without you manipulating, without you making sure you texted twice a day, without, without you making sure that you did whatever you think that would make that person want to be with you, If they just had to look at you and just see whether you were enough, maybe we feel like since our emptiness is probably showing, 
Sometimes I think our difficulty in relationships comes because we are trying to make that person we're in relationship with do something for our inner being that that other person, listen, cannot possibly do. I married the most beautiful, strong, passionate woman of God on the planet. There ought to be some brothers out there right now that are, that are standing up saying, I want to talk to you about that, pal. I married the most you know, beautiful, passionate woman of God on the planet. That's just the way I feel about her. After 33 years, she is the love of my life. Can't wait to get back home to her. Yeah. And I've got some other thoughts that I'm not going to share with you, but here's the point. First 10 years of our marriage, with all the emptiness I had inside, you know, I was an All-American football player and, you know, won awards and academics and whatever, but all of that overachievement, was in many ways meant to mask the insecurity I felt inside about not really knowing who I was and not really loving who I was. So when I got married, I wanted that woman to fill up the emptiness that I didn't know how to fill up. It almost destroyed the relationship. It really wasn't about her. It was about the emptiness in me that was culling the best parts of her to try to do what only God could do. How about this one? Do you find yourself being defined by externals? Grades, if you're in school, athletic success. Again, what people, look, what's out here is out here. That can't define you. Who you are is in here and emanates from inside. How often are we, is our mood about how we're feeling about our day dependent upon what's going on out here and how it feeds us information we think about who we really are? How about this one? Do you find yourself pretty much never at peace? and constantly driven. Of course, that could define our whole culture. And I think that, to be honest, it's because we have a culture full of of haters, self-haters. Because see, what happens is, if I have to just sit down, think about this, if I just sit down, and I just sit, and there's no radio blaring, there's no MP3 player, there's no TV, there's no computer, there's no feedback from friends, I'm just with me. If I don't know who I am, and if I don't have regard in the name of the Father for who I am, then the pain of my stuff will start to work its way up and the voices that shout about my insecurities and my inadequacies, and you'll never be enough, and you've never been all that, and you're a poser, you're a fake, and they all think this, but what if they knew the real you? All that stuff, when I just chill, when I just relax, when I just rest, when I'm just at peace, all that stuff starts to come up to the surface. And so you know why some of us fill our lives with activity? Not because we're hard workers, but because we don't want to deal with that pain. And the activity keeps those voices at bay. There are a dozen more, but let me just give you one. How about some of us who have addictive tendencies. You, a few years ago, weeks ago, you heard about Steve Phillips, the ESPN analyst who had, had the American dream, but a sex addict confessed it. Tiger Woods, the American dream, sex addict. Heidi Montag, I thought she was stunning before she had 20 surgeries, and yet inside, addicted to these various endeavors because of the emptiness. Some, some of you guys are, are addicted to porn. You're, you're not a pervert, brother. You're not a pervert. 
but you may have a whole lot of emptiness inside, and that emptiness has kept you from having positive relationships with sisters. And so since you're wired, this is how you're wired creatively to have relationships with sisters. If you don't know how to do it, can't, can't be around sisters because you feel so empty in your own self, it, it would make sense that we would tend to go toward some false, fake, pseudo-relational peace when it's tied to the experience of orgasm and the dopamine that's released in the brain, which is a chemical that's stronger than heroin, it would make sense that we'd find ourselves addicted to pornography, brothers. But really, the root is not, you know, you're some kind of a pervert. You're not a pervert, but it may be that deep down inside you're empty, and so that addictive tendency might betray that you've just got a wound, my brothers and sisters, that needs to be filled with the love of the Father. Some of us can even be addicted with good stuff. You know, how many times are we going to tell our spouses, yeah, I, the man makes me work 70 hours a week. That's why I work 70 hours a week. It's the, you know, if I didn't, you know, it's for our family. I mean, what's not to like? You have this house. You don't like this house? When really, the 70 hours, come on, come on, come on. At some point, could it be about the emptiness? And that, that work is what gives us definition? And some of us, can you believe it, can even be addicted to church. You might say to me, well, heck, man, I've made it this far. I'm functional. Is that all you want out of life? Functionality? The Scripture says it is for freedom that Christ set us free. So, turn in the corner. Were we born like this, with this emptiness piece? This is D. I'm not trying to play psychologist. And please, yeah, please don't think I'm just trying to be overly psychological. But can I tell you, by the way, that list that I just gave you, I didn't get that list out of a book. I got that list out of my own life. So as I began the journey at the age of 35, having had everything that a human being could ever want and still feeling empty and getting to the point where I was successful and suicidal, I began to ask myself, where did this emptiness come from? And many, not always, but many, many, many times, our emptiness begins in our family of origin. You guys know who Howard Stern is? How many of you know who Howard Stern is? He's a guy that I've found, I mean, cross-culturally, we kind of love to hate. He can be a butt sometimes, wouldn't you say, you know? Not that I watch his show, you understand. I've just heard, you know, that he can be a butt. Um, read an article in, an, in, a, in a, an airline magazine a few years ago, actually more than a few, maybe, maybe over a decade, and I, I can show it to you later if you want to see the, the page that I ripped out. Um, Someone was doing a, a phone interview with Howard Stern about how mean he is. And um, he says, you know, my dad used to berate me and abuse me verbally. And he said, sometimes today, he said, in my show, on my show, when I'm abusing someone and berating someone, it's like I can still hear my father in my ear at that moment berating me. And he said, one of the reasons I think I'm so driven 
in my life to succeed, and it's like I'm never satisfied, is to somehow prove to myself and maybe my dad that I'm not the jerk that my dad always implied by his behavior toward me that I was. Kind of makes you have a little more sympathy for Howard Stern, doesn't it? He's a human being, man. Empty, empty inside. Now, I think this is the toughest part of this moment here because for many of us, especially when we talk about family of origin, it's very easy to kind of just defend. I speak to student groups all over the place, and, and many times students will come, come up going, something about this is hitting me, but, you know, my dad now, now, he never told me he loved me, and he never hugged me, but I know he loved me. And see, the defense, look, I'm a dad. I'm not dissing your parents. I'm not dissing your coaches or the, the adult figures in your life. You know, all of us are going to be influential over kids at some point. So I'm just saying, let's get honest. Let's not, let's not try to start with what we wish was. Let's try to start with what, what is. And so one of the ways I think that maybe we can get behind the defense is to talk about, well, I found this book a few years ago of children that wrote letters, children who had been hurt in some way, who wrote letters to this group called Heart to Heart. And we've got some of these letters here. I hope, I hope you can see them. See if this touches you somewhere. Here's one by Christy. Dear Heart to Heart, I'm 10 and my father died when I was seven and I never did understand why this happened to me. Why did he leave me so soon? Can you tell me? Love always, Christy. Sometimes we're hurt in our family of origin. It's not because our parents tried to hurt us. The wound, nevertheless, might still be there. Dear heart to heart, I'm so sad. My dad is an alcoholic. I love him so much. I get mad when he breaks promises, and maybe if I would be really good, he would stop drinking. Please help me. Can you see this guy, like 40 years later, still trying to do enough good that maybe dad would stop drinking? In fact, maybe his wife would love him more. In fact, maybe the boss would approve of him. Maybe at church they would finally accept him if he would just because it started way back here. My name is Darren, and I'm in middle school, and this is the worst year of my life. I hate school. My parents think I don't try, but I do. I started drinking beer. It's the only time I feel okay. The emptiness, and the kid did what he had to do, he thought, just to fill up the emptiness inside. Why did God make a dumb person? P.S. I am the dumb person. Some of you have felt that all of your life, and it's just so absolutely not true. The Father loves you so much, but this is a wound and a burden you've been carrying around for many, many, many years, and all the activity in your life, somehow the frenetic activity goes back to trying to prove to yourself that you're not what you're afraid everybody thinks that you are. I think I'm too old to write you guys a letter because I'm whatever, so-and-so so years old. And I know your book, Don't Look at Me, is for little kids, but I just want you to know that there's a 12-year-old failure out here. Write, please, Sheila. Dear Doris, I'm in the ninth grade, and I'm thinking about killing myself, but I don't know how to do it. Kids at school keep putting me down. I honestly hate myself. How do I find out how to kill myself? Please write, Jared. Heart to heart. I wouldn't feel bad about myself except that I'm fat and kids tease me. I can't help being fat. I eat less than anybody. It's not very fun to be ugly if you want to know. So many weight issues in this room today. 
I, I wonder if we could just begin, maybe this could be the day when you begin to realize it has nothing to do with who you are. Dear heart to heart, I still haven't told my parents about what happened to me. This is a kid who got sexually abused. The man who did this to me is very old. If I told he might go to jail, I think that I can forget about this until he dies. I'll be glad and able to live the rest of my life in peace. Love, Joe. P.S. I hope he doesn't go to heaven because I want to go there. I don't like it when people ask me how come my parents didn't want me. They just had problems. That's from Troy. I need help in my mom and dad's divorce. It still doesn't heal my wounds. It's it hurts terribly, my wounds. How can I stop that? I want to stop the pain. I wish I would just forget it today, but I never, ever stop. Please help me. I cry, but crying never helps. I wish I knew what happened, and I know I wish it never happened. My mom and dad loved me and the other kids. Why can't they love each other? Whoever started the joke about, I'm not trying to shame anyone, but painless divorce, I, I don't even, that's like an oxymoron I don't even understand. I think that might be it. And so, let me come down for a second. You sat pretty close today, sorry. Okay. What's your name? Tyler. Tyler, nice to meet you, Tyler. I want to do a little experiment with Tyler here, just before I kind of give you the last few thoughts I want to give you about this, this topic. Did you know that in the Jewish community, now think of these wounds, and some of your own wounds might have been opened up by some of these, I don't know. These are things we don't like to think about, don't like to talk about, and what we try to do is we try to put these wounds in like places in our spirit, like in toxic waste barrels, but they rust out, and then all that waste gets in the groundwater of our relationships, and so we've got to deal with this stuff. So unfortunately, the church doesn't make it very, not Antioch necessarily, but most of the times the church doesn't make it very safe to deal with this stuff. We want to be rejoicing. We want to be triumphant. We don't want to be talking so much about wounds. And yet Jesus called himself man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He came to heal the brokenhearted. If we can't talk about our broken hearts, how can we receive healing? So in the Jewish community, on Sabbath, on Friday night, the father would call his children over to him personally before the start of the Sabbath meal that began the whole deal. And so Tyler is going to be my pretend son, okay, for just this moment. And so, sorry, sweetie, I know you're hanging. I won't hurt him, okay? You're hanging on to him pretty tight there. Um, so would you lean forward just a little bit, Tyler? Thank you, son. And I'm going to act like Tyler. I've just, how old are you? 23. I'm 56. I have a 24-year-old daughter, so this, this works, okay? So let's just pretend that I've just brought Tyler to me. And there usually would be a formal blessing, but I got to feel that most Jewish fathers, if not all, would do something very personal as well. So, son, it's so good to be with you again on this Sabbath evening. And I just want to say, Tyler, how proud I am of you. I don't really know if I tell you enough but I'm so proud of who you have become as a young man. I watch the way you treat people, the way you love them. I'm so touched by that. Sometimes I think, how did he learn that from the likes of your mother and me when we've screwed up so much? But you are a person that loves others, Tyler. I'm so proud of you for that. 
And you know, all your endeavors, I don't know if I've told you, but you know, when you're on the athletic field or when you're doing your music, I don't really care if you squeak or if you're on the second team or the first team or score a touchdown or fumble the ball. It really doesn't matter to me, son. I hope you know that. You're just my son. And I just love you. The world doesn't always treat you with that kind of encouragement and compassion. I know they don't. But I want you to know, son, that as long as our Father gives us breath, gives me breath, I'm going to be with you all the way. When you're hurting, I want you to know I'm going to try to be there for you. It won't be perfect, but I will be, I promise you, hovering because I love you so much. I'd like to be able to say like God, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I can't say that. I'm just a human. But boy, if I could, son, I would just be present to you every step of the way. I remember the day you were born. When you came out of your mother, I remember just shouting, that's my boy. God has given me a son. And it has been an incredible journey all the way, son. I love you, Tyler. I love you so much, it makes my heart hurt. And I will love you all the way home. God bless you, son. God bless you. God bless you, son. God bless you. God bless you, son. Now, I want you all to turn your heads while I try to get back up on this stage, okay? <laughs> Did you see that? <clears throat> you all giggled at the kiss, but most of us want one, you see. I kissed a big old guy in prison about 18 years ago before he got sent up. Hardened criminal. After I sat with him, and he just sat there, and I started to weep over him because I didn't know what else to do. And, and he, I got up. He came around the table. I put my arms around him. I hugged him. The guy was a rapist. Raped, raped a cop's wife at knife point. I hugged him. I whispered in his ear title that I loved him, and I kissed him just like that. At that point, I thought, what have I done? What have I done? And that guy went back into his cell and said at that moment, he said, I don't know what just happened to me, but he said, no one's ever told me they love me, especially no man. No one has ever hugged me like that, especially a man. And I promise you, no man has ever kissed me like that with affection. I've got to know the source of that love. Ten years later, that guy trusted Christ in prison, and uh, he's in our congregation today. So it's powerful stuff. Now, this this is kind of the final deal here, okay? We're not all going to get that from our earthly fathers, So at some point, we've got to grieve the loss of whatever we did or didn't get from our earthly fathers and mothers and begin to realize that we have a heavenly father that wants to do that, wants to bless us like that and to fill us up with his love every moment of every day of our lives. And so I just want to leave you this morning with, with three little snippets. And I want, I'm going to go through this quickly, all right, because we've got to wrap this up. But here's three things that I know the Father says about you today, all right? The first one comes from Psalm 139. I think you'll see this on the screen. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David writes that about himself, but it's generic enough in the context that it's about you. 
So the question is, again, who are you? Do you know that God made you the way you are? That God wired you. If you're artsy, I remember going speaking to a group of Campus Crusade students at Grand Valley State University where a young man had just trusted Christ. And he came up in front of the group and he said, I'm giving up my art for Jesus. And I thought, is this, this is crazy evangelical Christianity. I went up to him afterward. I said, son, you don't know me. You might think I'm whacked out. But the fact is, I hope that you take that art. God gave you that art. I hope you offer that art to him because that's part of who you are. What dreams have you had over the years because they were part of you that you let go of because you thought, ah, that's not practical, that's not pragmatic. My dad told me I could never do that. My mother never said I could be about that. The coach always said I would never amount. Who are you? And what would it be like today if you got up in the morning and realized that instead of that insidious, subtle, I think I'm really probably a piece of crap, but I'll do the best I can anyway today, or I don't know really who I am, I don't really care about who I am. What if you got up saying, the Father made me. The Father put me together. The Father wired me like I'm wired. He gave me my hair color, my nose. Ladies, what if we stopped comparing ourselves with the magazine covers and said, I'm going to learn to get comfortable with my nose, my arms, my legs, and be who my Father created me to be? How would that change your life? You guys know Mr. Rogers, right? You know this thing that he used to say on his show? I used to listen to this with my kids, and I'd, I'd start sniveling, you know, when he said it. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your diplomas. They're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you. What if you began to believe today that God didn't just love you because, of course, he's God and he's love, so, of course, he loves me. What if, what if you could be convinced by the word of God that he likes you? How would that change your life? Here's the second truth, because I know what some of you do, because this is what I do. I go, okay, all right, he made me a certain way. All right, I'll, I'll admit it. I've been shaming over some things that he actually gave me. I'd like to embrace that. But the, fra- the fact is, how he fearfully and wonderfully made me, well, if you knew my journey, Kevin, I've really screwed some of that up. Well, I'm the president of that club. I don't know what you think about speakers, but you don't know me, and you don't know my story. And you don't know how weird I really am. I might be looking a little weird. You have no idea how weird I really am. And I was telling Don last night that if, without the love of Christ that began to fill me when I was 35, I was so tired of overachieving and being the good little church boy. Like I got to tell you, my anger issues that have plagued me all along, which were kind of the leakage of my particular wound, I think would have either landed me in jail or landed me dead on the streets of Detroit. So I, I get it. If you're saying to me today, you, you know, you don't know, Kev, I've never told anybody, but, but I, I, I had an abortion a few years ago. Nobody knows. How can God love me because I've messed up what he fearfully and wonderfully made? Or the little girl at, at crusade, another crusade retreat a few weeks ago came up to me and said, you're telling me that he loves me and he created me to be a woman, but I just came out as a bisexual. And so what does he think about me now as the tears just ran down her face? So I know you all have your story. We all have a story. But this is the truth. This is what the Father says. Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ, we have, listen, 
redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. What do you wear that cross for around your neck? Is that just some kind of a little thing, a little ornament? You know why I wear this? So that when I screw up, which, by the way, is pretty much daily, I put my hand up here and remind myself, I am forgiven. Which, by the way, biblically speaking, means the sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. They've been thrown into the bottom of the deepest sea. God the Father says, I, listen, I remember them no more. One of my closest friends is a guy who about 13 years ago took a knife. He, he, he was a great guy, played basketball against Shaquille O'Neal, but had a mental illness, didn't know it. Stabbed his mother six times. Uh, uh, uh. He's 350, 6'6". Six, six. The last time it was, die, B. And they acquitted him five years later by reason of insanity. And so he's in our community today. He's one of my closest friends, works with me in the neighborhood. Every day he has to remind himself, yeah, I screwed up being fearfully and wonderfully made, but thank God he sent the son to die for me so that what I tend to remember and to shame over and to let kind of shrink me and my ability to live, my father says he remembers it no more. You ever hear the story of the African proverb of the chief? Somebody was stealing chickens in the, in, in, in the village and... He said, five lashes for five chickens, and then five more chickens, 10 lashes, five more chickens. Finally, there were like 30 chickens gone, 30 lashes, and they found the perpetrator. Knew who it was? It was his mother. And so he was a just chief. So she had to have the penalty given to her. And so they tied her up in this particular tribal situation, disrobed her to the waist, and before the guy with the whip could start. Listen to this. The chieftain took off his own robe and put his naked torso around his mother to protect her. And then he said to the guy with the whip, now you can proceed. My brothers and sisters, some of you have been whipping yourself for years for something that you think nobody knows about, and, it, and it, it should just taint what God thinks about you. You are his son and daughter. He loves you with all of his heart. He sent his son to take the whipping so that you didn't have to take it anymore. Maybe this is the day when you can hear your father say, for maybe the first time, you're really forgiven. And then the last one, my favorite. Romans chapter 8. For God has not given us a spirit of fear again unto bondage, but he has given us the Holy Spirit of adoption that causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Now I know as much as Ken teaches about this, I just know what images most of us have about God growing up. He's the great coach in the sky that if I run a 4.6, he wants me to run a 4.5. If I clear 16 feet in the pole vault, he wants 16.2. If I go 7-3, and three, he wants 9-1. and one. 
Some of us think he's the great principal in the sky. If I get all A's and one B, he wants to know why I didn't get all A's. Some of us think he's the great boss in the sky. If I meet 80% of my numbers, he wants to know why I didn't get 90%. Can I tell you, those, listen, those concepts of God are lies from hell. You know what Paul said? You can call God Abba, which means daddy. Who's your daddy? Your heavenly father is your daddy. What would it be like if when you got up in the morning, instead of like most of us as evangelical Christians or people trying to find God, we get up in the morning and we see at the end of our bed, in our mind's eye, if not really, we see the Ten Commandments. We get up, you know, we're trying to follow Christ. We get up, uh, we get our, you know, go to the restroom, get some water, brush our teeth. We go, okay, what's my day going to be about? What we see at the end of our bed is the Ten Commandments. Do this do that, don't do this, don't do that. And of course, who's standing there? God saying, welcome to your day. The commands. No wonder most of us struggle in the Christian experience. What a crock that is. Can you imagine why non-believers who see us walking with God like that don't want to be about it? What if, my brothers and sisters, what if when you got up in the morning, there was this dude sitting on your bed and you said, uh, excuse me, but who are you? And he goes, I'm God. I'm God, your father. What are you doing here? I'm your Abba. I just told you, and I love you so much. I always want to be with you, and so I've been here with you all night long. I don't sleep much, and so I decided to be here just because I wanted to watch you sleep and take care of your business, whatever that might be. And then we would say, well, then what are we going to do today? And he'd say, take my hand, son. Tyler, just take my hand. Take my hand, Brenda. Just take my hand. Because I'm your father. And what I want to do is just walk with you through life. What if I can't hang on, Lord? Oh, but I'm hanging on to you. What if I stumble, Lord? I'm there to pick you up. What if I screw up? My son has died for that screw up. What about the future? I've got it in the palm of my hand. You just take my hand because I'm your Abba. Would you think I was self-indulgent if I showed you this picture? That's it. You can see how I was shaped like a V back then. It was amazing. But anyway, um, those are two of my youngest daughters. My two, no, my oldest and my middle. My youngest one wasn't born. I have that picture at several strategic places in my world, to remind me of the way the Scripture describes our walk with our Father. My brothers and sisters, what would it be like if instead of seeing God as the great coach, the great whatever, that's always looking at you with this bony finger of contempt, what would it be like if you began to believe what your heavenly Father said? doesn't matter what your earthly Father did or didn't do. Those are losses that have to be grieved. What if you could begin to hear the voice of your heavenly Father calling you his beloved son, his beloved daughter, in whom he is well pleased? And your role in life is to take his hand and walk with him all the way home.
Would you bow your heads with me, please? In just a minute, I'm going to have you listen to a song. But I just want to create an image in your mind. Again, from my, my dear brother, Brendan Manning, whom I've only met once or twice, but I wish I could hang out with him. He tells the story of a young woman who came to one of his retreats. And she said, I don't feel close to God. I don't know his love. I don't feel his love. And so Brennan Manning said, I want you to go back to your room. This young woman's name was Christine. And he said, I want you to kneel down on the floor and I want you to ask your heavenly father to reveal his love to you. Novel concept. And so she began to pray. And she began to fall asleep during the middle of that prayer. And by the way, for any of you who have felt guilty about falling asleep while you're praying, can I tell you, that is your Heavenly Father's favorite moment of his day, when you fall asleep in his arms while you're talking to him. And so she was in the gray twilight between wake and sleep, and she said to Brendan Manning later, she said, I saw this dance floor. And of course, I was off to the side because I've always been off to the side. No one's ever picked me. No one's ever chosen me. Don't think God chooses me. But all these other couples were out on the floor dancing. Everybody had someone except me. And then Christine said, but then I began to see someone from the other side of the room walking in between the dancing couples, and it seems like this individual had his eyes on me. But, of course, I looked around behind me because no one ever has their eyes on me, so why would this person have their eyes on me? And I was so full of shame that I kept my eyes to the floor. I couldn't even bring myself to look this person in his eyes. He came over to me. He got up close, and he said, Would you like to dance, Christine? And I said, to my surprise, Christine said, I said, Of course I would. And so the brother took her in his arms, and they began to dance. And they danced, and they danced And they danced and they danced until finally all the other couples were around the side of the dance floor watching Christine and her partner dance. And finally, her partner stopped and leaned down and whispered in her ear, Christine, don't you know that I'm wild about you? That I'm wild about you? That I'm wild about you? For the first time, she had the courage to look up. And she looked into the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it be like today, my brothers and sisters, for you to begin to believe that your Heavenly Father doesn't tolerate you? He's wild about you. And that you can never, ever, ever lose His love. You will lose your
to 